Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. We're going to continue today with our sermon. We have been in a, a series called The Word of God. We're starting this year kind of, it feels a bit foundational, but it also feels illuminating at the same time as we go back to the, the beginning. We're asking, what is the Word of God? And as Ken explained in the first week of our series, uh, the Word of God is, is actually two things. The Word of God is the written Word of God as represented in your Bible. It is also the Word of God embodied in the flesh in the person of Jesus. And so when we say the Word of God, there's, there's two words of God. There's Jesus, the Word of God, and His Scripture, the Word of God. What we're, we're focusing on in this series is essentially big Bible questions. What are the big questions? First, what was the Bible? We asked that, what is the Bible? The second question we asked last week is, is the Bible historically credible? Because if it isn't, then a lot of the other things don't really matter. Is the Bible historically credible? So we talked about that last week. I'd invite you to go back and listen or watch that if you missed it and have curiosity there. And then today, what we're going to ask is, is the Bible really divine or divinely inspired? Is it spirit-inspired? Our uh, statement of faith says that the Bible was written by human authors under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We believe the Bible teaches that it was written by human authors under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to start with a question which asks, um, same as last week, why does it matter? Why does it matter if the Bible is divinely inspired or if it's just a really good book of wisdom compiled by some really smart people? What's the difference? The difference is the Bible claims to be the ultimate source of truth. It claims to be universal truth and unwavering truth. And this matters because the reality is that you and I, whether we believe it or not, whether we've uh, kind of recognized it or not, right now you and I see truth as fungible. Truth is kind of like it can be or it can't be. It can be true tomorrow, but not the next day. It can tr- be true yesterday, but maybe not today. Truth in our world, but, but really in us, we see truth as sort of something that, you know, take it or leave it. We're not totally sure we buy into truth. This is societally seen in uh, one of my favorite things to talk about when we know, like, how do we know something is true? Because right now, what we think is true, tomorrow we may not think is true. Remember when doctors were real big fans of cigarettes? You remember this? It really helps her T-zone, it says. T-zone for taste and for throat. It's really good for your taste and your throat. That's what the doctor says. This is good. And he makes up things, and more doctors smoke camels. And you can find one of these advertisements for every single cigarette brand. You go watch television shows, magazines. You watch anything, and the, the old way is, yes, course you're smoking. When, when we were born, this children of the 70s and 80s, our parents would tell us that the father was not allowed in the delivery room. Instead, he was out smoking in the waiting room with all the other expectant dads. And you go, that's exactly what I want to be in, a hospital full of smoke. Okay. Everyone then agreed it was harmful, right? Nobody now says, you know what? Cigarettes are probably good for you. It helps your T-zone. It's great. No one says that. What did we hear a couple years ago? We heard Quit smoking and start vaping. Much better for you. You get rid of all the toxic chemicals. There's no tar. You get all the blessings and none of the burden. Vaping is good for you. What do we hear now? Maybe inhaling vaporized chemicals of unknown origin may not be the best idea. (laughs) So we accept these things as truths when they're truth. 
Well, that was true, but it's not true anymore. It is true, but it's true to a point. And so we begin to realize that they are what we would call contextual truths. There are things that are true in context, but may not be true universally, okay? As in, um, I was reading this week, I read an article that the ozone is repairing itself. I don't even know what that means. The ozone has a hammer, and it's, you know, working on it. Kind of, but all we heard is that the hairspray of the 80s had ruined the ozone, and the ozone was irreparable. And now climate science is moving forward, and they're like, actually, in some areas, the ozone seems to be repairing itself. Do we even know what that means? No. Is it true? Maybe. Is it going to be true tomorrow? Not sure. So it's in climate, in economics. Reaganomics, anybody remember Reaganomics? See, trickle-down economics, supply-side economics. That was the way to do things. Although his vice president called it voodoo economics. That doesn't work. Voodoo economics. And, and so did it work? Just depends on who you ask. Is it true that Reaganomics was a great plan? Depends on who you ask. It's true for some and not for others. But what, it, what was certain is in its context is where we're talking about it. When we talk about economic policy of the past or what we're going to do in the future, it has to be contextually driven. So Ronald Reagan inherits stagflation. And what does he do? He creates a policy. They create a policy that attempts to address a certain thing in a Cold War with a global superpower. So if we applied all those same principles today, would they be true today? Well, I'm not sure they would work today because contextually they're in a different space. And so what was true in 1980 may not be true in 2023. It's contextual. Or if I said it's cold outside today, is that true? Some of you might say yes. Contextually, it might be. Is it cold outside today? Not in Ecuador, okay? So it's true in our context, maybe, but it's not true in all contexts. And it's actually warm outside comparatively if we're thinking about talking to our friends in Siberia. They would say, you guys, it is a balmy 33 today. Lucky you. So what is true for us is true contextually. This is interesting to me because as we talk about the scripture, we're going to be talking about the difference between contextual truth and universal truth. Because laws change and trends change and culture changes and our knowledge base changes, but the Bible purports itself to be an, a universal, unchanging truth. Jesus compared it to shifting sands in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus' words are this. He says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. What's he saying? You can either build your life upon the currently acceptable truth claims that Jesus would say are like shifting sand, that the culture changes and truth changes and ideas change and wisdom changes and all of it changes. And so you build your house on that and it will change on you. There will be a fault in that. Or he says you can build on something greater. What is greater? He's, he's, this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. These are the words of God. If we believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, these are the very words of God. And he says, if you listen to my words and you do them, I am the word of God. This is the word of God. If you listen to the word and do it, 
then you will be like a house built on the rock because it does not change. Because the universal truth of the scripture is unchanging. The universal truth of the words of Jesus are unchanging. Jesus is making the claim that you can build your house on one of two places. Lest we forget in the same sermon, Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus looks at the, old, the Torah, the Old Testament, that we would say, well, some people will go, well, that Jesus came. He nailed the Old Testament to the cross, and on we go. And Jesus says, I didn't come. I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. I didn't come to abolish the Torah. I came to fulfill it. I am the fulfillment of it. I am the embodiment of it. And so to follow Jesus is to follow it as well. So he's not eliminating what was. He's saying, I am what was, and I am who I am, and I am who will be. And so if you want to follow me, it it requires we follow the word of God as well. We hold it to be what it claims to be. He doesn't undo anything. Jesus would say he is the affirmation of all things. He's unwavering. He's a firm foundation. In a world where everything that's true is true until it isn't, Jesus says, I'm true, and I'm true forever. And you can trust his universal truth. Life is fragile. You don't have to live very long to realize that life is fragile. We are vulnerable creatures. Jesus offers security and clarity in an ever-changing world. Jesus offers security and clarity in a world that is shifting beneath our feet. The Apostle Paul picks this up in 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy, he's writing to his, uh, his understudy, really, his, his, his spiritual son, Timothy. He says this, understand this. In the last days, there will be times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self and lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. You know what Paul is saying? Delete your Twitter. That's what he's there. <laughs> no, he's reading our mail, right? All these accurate accusations of what the world is going to be like, you look around and it doesn't take long to figure out this is what the world is like. Lest we think we're off the hook. What about religious people, Paul? What about religious people? He goes, oh, yeah, those people who claim the appearance of godliness and deny his power. So careful. Paul is saying that there's a lot of people that uh, live in the name of Jesus, but not in the power of Jesus. That's another sermon. Like maybe we're desperate to be filled with the Spirit, but we're unwilling to lean on Him. We're desperate to have the, the saving Jesus, but we don't really want to trust Him for the rest of our lives. We still kind of want to own ourselves. I got my own truths to try out. So what do we do? How do we find the path? How do we find truth? How do we stay on the path of truth? Paul continues in his letter a little bit further down. He says, you, in verse 10, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me while I was at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, where, which persecutions I endured, yet from all of them the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Paul says, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, 
and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or messenger of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So Paul says to Timothy, and and the implication here is not just Timothy, but Timothy and those he leads, because when you write a letter in those times, it's a bit like writing a letter expecting it to be read aloud to the local congregation. So Paul is saying to the local congregation led by Timothy, you followed me, Paul, and I follow Jesus. Like we've got a discipleship lineage happening here. We're all following Christ in this. And he's saying, hold on to what I've taught. Yes. Hold on to all the things I've told you. Yes. Keep the faith. Yes. And he says, hold on to the sacred writings. Hold on to the sacred writings, which, quote, make you wise for salvation in Jesus. As an aside, anytime we talk about Timothy, I just feel compelled to talk about Timothy. Timothy was um, famously had faith lineage that came from his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. Timothy's dad was Greek, so he was a half-Greek, half-Jew. This would have been called a mumser. It was kind of not a really nice word. And he wouldn't have been allowed to do the things that normal Jewish boys would have done. He was not allowed to go and study Torah with the other boys. He was kept out because he was mixed race, so he was discriminated against because of it. So Timothy is an outsider. And yet what we hear over and over in the scriptures is Timothy still persisted in faith. From childhood acquainted with sacred writings. Like, not only did he get faith from these strong women in his life, but then there's this picture that Paul kind of paints, almost like Timothy. You could see in the, in the little town where he was living that Timothy is, like, sneaking by the window where the, the other boys are learning the Torah, and he's sneaking by and just listening to the Scriptures. He's soaking up God's Word. He's, he's so excited to hear the sacred writing that Timothy just, he's, he's chasing it with everything he has. But what's the enemy's lie for Timothy? If we had an enemy, we played this game in my house, I've said this before, if we had an enemy, Scripture says there's an enemy that lurks in the world. Sometimes things will happen in my house and I go, okay, if we had an enemy, would this not be the plan? If Timothy had an enemy, what would the lie of the enemy be? What would the whisper in Timothy's ear be? Your moms are not worthy of this. You can't lead God's people. You're not even of them. Yet Timothy didn't let his outsider status stop him. So just briefly, what is the lie that the enemy is telling you to keep you from being in God's word? What is the lie that the enemy is whispering to you to keep you from his word? That you don't have time? Maybe you don't have the education you think you need. Maybe you got a sin in your back pocket that you think's a little too big. Maybe you feel disqualified. Maybe you just feel shame and guilt and you go, I can't really, I don't want to chase God or face God because of what I have in me. I'd like to call out lies. They're lies. If you're believing one of these lies and it's holding you back from following Christ, if it's holding you back from opening the the word of God, if it's holding you back from investigating further the person of Jesus who invites you to follow him, call out the lies. In Jesus, there is no status. In Jesus, there is no hurdle. In Jesus, there is no barrier or wall. 
The cross bridges every single gap. You cannot outsend God's grace. You cannot outrun his mercy. And so what it is that the enemy is whispering in your ear, call the lie a lie. Because God is inviting you closer. He's inviting you in. He's saying, lean in. And the lie is that you're somehow unworthy. So the lies stop. In the name of Jesus, you are set free. So if that's all you need to hear today, if you leave with nothing else, then you are loosed and released to follow him with everything you have, with all that you are, with all the baggage you bring. That's what you need to hear. You are here today because he is calling you into the depth and hope. He's calling you into his salvation, the word which makes you wise for the path of salvation, that you might know him, that you might make him known. It starts with knowing his word, not a collection of random writings, not a collection of interesting mythology, his word, God's word, divinely inspired, written by human hands, but with spirit breath. Paul says in a world of turmoil, we can trust God's word because, as we said, verse 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that the man or messenger of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So what's this word, breathed out by God? What does that mean? You go, theopneustos is the word we're looking at there. We put it on the board. You can read it with us. Say it, theopneustos. Oh, that's not even close. Let's try again on three. We're going to theopneustos on three. One, two, three. Theopneustos. Look at you, Greek speakers. It's the only place in Scripture this word is ever used. It's not a hard word to break down. Theo, God, neustos, breath. That's it. God breath. The Scripture, the text, the Bible is, it's God breath. The same breath that we see in Genesis 1 that creates, the same power that creates, the same power that gives life in the Spirit, the same, it's God breath. So when I ask, how can we know that the Scriptures are divine or divinely inspired? How can I know that the Bible is really God's Word, not just some collection? This may not satisfy everybody, but this is it. The Bible is a witness unto itself. The Bible asserts that it is God-breathed. The Bible asserts that it is God's breath for people. And why this might not satisfy is it can't be tested against experience, like any observable nature. Like we are people post-enlightenment, we are scientific method people. I will believe it if I can test it and experientially see that it's true. That's what we say. For something to be true, it must be experientially true for you and me, which is how we have different truths these days, because you experience it one way and I experience it a different way, and as a result, we think we have different truths. It's experiential. So when I say prove it about just about anything, what you're actually asking, when I say prove it, I'm asking you to give me science or a measurement. So like if I said it's cold in here, what would you do? If I say it's cold in here, when I say it's cold outside, the thing you ask, we ask this every day. We have an Alexa in our house, and we say, Alexa, what's the weather today? And Alexa says, good morning. It's 33 today. You can expect snow showers. And she goes through the whole day. And if we go, what's the weather for this week? And she, this robot, doesn't have a gender, but we're going to give it a she because she sounds like a she. She tells us the whole week. Why do we ask? I know it's cold outside. It's January, and we live in a frozen swamp, right? I'm basically saying, prove it, Alexa. Prove it. 
and she says, it's 33. And I go, actually, that's pretty cold. She's measured it, right? The, the measurement tells me I can believe it. The measurement tells me I will experience some sort of verifiable fact. It's a proof. And yet the Bible makes a claim to be a witness unto itself. Is that okay? We'll come back to it. Peter, later in the scripture, makes the same claim as Paul. Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 through 21, he says this, We have a prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing that this of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Still unsatisfying. There's no proof there. So let's look to Jesus. Jesus, John chapter 8. He's in the temple courts. He says this. He says, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself? Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. In your law, Jesus says, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I'm the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And they said to him, therefore, who is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you'd know my father also. Jesus is in the temple courts, and he says, I'm the light of the world. And the Pharisees go, whoa, ho, ho, hey. Alexa, what's the temperature on this Jesus character? And it's like, there, no. He just claimed it. There's no proof. There's no measurement. There's no scientific method. Well, let's see if he is. Then he should be able to, I mean, Satan tried that. If you are, throw yourself off the mountain. Jesus goes, not, no, that's not how this works. Well, if you are, you know, turn this rock and this stone into bread. Jesus goes, not how it works. I don't have to prove myself to you. They can't see it. They can't test it. They can't believe it. So the Pharisees are aghast. Jesus' claims of divinity were self-declared. They need two or more. That's the law. Two or more makes witness testimony acceptable. Jesus says, the God of the universe bears witness to me. And it's a scandal in the moment, but it's instructive for us. We believe on faith that Jesus is who he says he is. So even beyond the historical credibility that we talked about last week and all the eyewitness testimony that was best practice that we've seen in our scripture, we believe that Jesus is who he says he is. We believe that that's possible. We believe that Jesus is the son of God who lived a perfect life, who died a sacrificial death and was risen from the grave, not just because it was written about by people who followed him, but because those who did not follow him or believe, Josephus and others, would write about it and go, this was a thing that happened, this historical thing happened. And we go, there, see, that's, you proved it. Scientific method, it's proved. I can't prove any of it. We believe because there's faith required in the belief process. We believe that the Bible is really divine and the Spirit really breathes it out. And we believe it because not only can it be a matter of faith, but it's also never been refuted. And this matters. If I can't prove it, can you refute it? If I can't prove it, can you refute it? We talked about it last week. The Bible has great historical credibility. There's never been any archaeological find that has ever proved, disproven part of the Bible. 
Ah, see, they were lying about this one. This proves it. It disproves Scripture, and it proves something else. Never happened. We've talked about every successive scientific and archaeological discovery backs up the facts of the Bible, and if we need more, then we move into the world of prophecy. And the Bible has wild prophecy, all of which occurred at least 400 years before the arrival of this Jesus of Nazareth. 300 Old Testament, pro- Old Testament prophecies were made about Jesus. 300 prophecies made at least 400 years before the arrival of Jesus, and they're really specific. Jesus' divine nature, his exact lineage, his virgin conception, his birthplace, his specific sufferings, his betrayal for 30 pieces of silver, his criminal's death, his hands and feet being pierced, that his no bone was broken, that he would be buried with the rich, that he would raise from the dead, and every single Old Testament prophecy about the person of Jesus has been proven true, never disproven, never refuted. And the proof and the eyewitness testimony is what we have. And so when we say all Scripture is God-breathed, the question is, do you need more proof than Scripture witnessing to itself? And the only way I can think to convince you, maybe you're not convincible, is to hold this. Uh, My wife journals. Find her in the morning, she wakes up, she says hello, she journals. And I know her. I know her voice. I know her heart. I know her character. I know her life. If you hand me her journal and an identical-looking book that is not her journal, and you ask me which one is her, I can tell you which one is her. I can tell you which one she wrote. I can tell you which one contains her thoughts and her heart. I can tell you because I know her, and I know her well. And the better I know her, the easier it gets for me to tell you that what she wrote here is true and what was written there, that's not her. That's not true at all. It's a virtuous cycle. Because I know her, I hear her voice. Because I know her voice and hear her voice, I then know her heart. Because I know her heart, I can better know her character. And it's because I know her that I can then know her words are true or untrue. So when I hear her heart, I grow in love with her which helps me know her better and hear her more, and on the cycle goes. All of which leads me to loving her more fiercely because I know her more intimately. What if we had the words of Jesus we could look at? What if we had the written word of God? What if we had God's character on display in word? What if we had God's heart displayed in the word? What if you leaned into Jesus and, and made a point to just say, I want to grow in relationship? What if, we, what if we, you open your Bible and you open it to John or Mark, you open it to one of the four Gospels, and you say a simple prayer? What if you said, Jesus, speak to me and show me yourself? Show me yourself, Lord. What if you immersed yourself in his words and his works in his life? What if you knew Jesus better and you began to know his heart? And when you began to know his heart, you began to hear his voice. And as you began to hear his voice, you would begin to understand his character. And as that virtuous cycle starts to go, you begin to understand that there is a self, a beautiful, self-fulfilling cycle at play. Where we grow in confidence about the word of God because we grow in intimacy and knowledge of the, the writer of the word, the breather of the truth. 
As you know the heart of Christ, it grows your love. It helps you hear him more clearly, and it grows the ferocity of your love for him. And you come back to his word, and you go, no, no, this is true of him. And this happens, and you know this happens because I get articles from you guys all the time. That you read something online that somebody wrote that doesn't seem to line up with his word or his character or his heartbeat. And you go, this commentator, this pastor, this person, this, I don't think this is true at all. And I go, why don't you think that's true? And the answer is always, well, it contradicts his word. It's not contradicts his character. It wouldn't be. And you go, exactly. As we grow in sharpness in his word, we begin to see that his word is true and it never fails us. And so the challenge of today is convinced or not. Would you be willing to immerse yourself deeper in God's word? To put your faith in the word the same way you put the faith in Jesus, because Jesus is the word of God in flesh. And what we would say is he is our anchor, and he is our hope, and he's our firm foundation in a world of shifting sand where everything is moving, where the target moves, where the truth moves, where context means everything. The word of God is offered to you as a universal truth that covers all. And it removes from you the requirement to figure out what context am I in today to know what's true and not. Instead, you say, what context am I in today to know how to apply God's truth to the world around you? And it's a massive shift, and it starts with believing that his word is true. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you uh, have given us an unspeakable gift in your word. You've given us truth in a shifting culture. You've given us the ability to know your heart and your character. Father, my prayer is that we as a people would not uh, take that lightly. We would not receive the gift and set it on a shelf. Lord, compel us. Nudge us. Invite us into knowing you through knowing your word and your character. God, for the heart of the skeptic, the heart of the doubter, Father, I pray that you would meet them in this place. Invite them into the same process you've invited the rest of us into. When we were doubters and skeptics, invite us into the process of knowing you and testing you, seeing that you never come back void. Your word never comes back void. Show us. Father, may we be a community that is not just a people who reads the book, but lives the book, that lives the word, that lives Jesus, so that love and grace are on our lips, so that mercy goes before us. Father, I pray not only that we would get into our Bibles, but that our Bibles would get into us. And as we live out your life in this place, that hearts would be changed, that lives would be transformed. And Father, we might be tools of your good will. So God, thank you for your presence here. We lift this up in Jesus' name.